This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The focus of this talk is um, on the concept of image for understanding ourselves in light of God as Trinity. So uh, to do that, there, there are three main parts uh, to this talk that I, I want to cover. The first has to do with um, what we may call epistemology or, or knowing. What does it mean to know? And further, what does it mean to know God, both according to natural reason and the kind of knowledge that we have through faith? They're related in some ways, but they're also very different. Uh, so we'll talk first about that and also about how Aquinas synthesizes the two within the context of a living theological tradition. Uh, the second is about the concept of grace in relation to human anthropology. So in light of who the human person is, what is grace? What problems does it solve for us? Uh, what does it offer? What changes does it uh, imply for the human person? And how does that relate to things like faith and also realities like hope and love as well? The final section is about grace as a manner of Trinitarian indwelling. So one of the, the most distinctive aspects of Aquinas' theology of grace, uh, he's not alone in the broader Catholic tradition, of course, um, but it's, it's that he claims uh, and, and argues that grace is a, a mode of, of personal indwelling by which the Trinitarian persons themselves, particularly through the invisible missions, we'll talk about that uh, later, the invisible missions of the Son and the Spirit, the whole Trinity comes to dwell uh, within the human person. So sanctification for St. Thomas Aquinas is very much, um, it's very different, <laughs> right, from natural knowing, and it changes the mode uh, in the most fundamental way in which we relate to God. Uh, so we'll talk about all that in those three stages. But first, I'd like to talk um, about the, uh, the, the nature of epistemology, um, both in a natural and a supernatural key, touching on natural reason and the reality of faith, just to lay the groundwork for that. Um, when we think about our, 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 our knowledge of God, we can think about, again, a distinction between the natural and the, and the supernatural. Uh, infused contemplation or illumination for both Aquinas and Augustine have to do with the articles of faith. So when we say we believe something, um, there are senses in which we can say that in a natural sense. We believe it's going to rain later today. Looking at the weather today, that looks like a safe bet, I would say, uh, or at least it's in the offing, right? Um, but that's different from supernatural faith uh, in a substantive sense. So we were talking about the difference between natural truth and um, the, the type of supernatural illumination in the language of St. Augustine that comes with the Articles of Faith. Um, now, the Articles of Faith, materially speaking, just in terms of what they are, are the things that we believe. Uh, that is to say, the content of the creed. So if you think about uh, just the creed you recite at Mass, uh, those are the Articles of Faith, right? Um, so materially, we know what they are. Um, but there's a formal dimension to, to the act of faith itself and that's a technical term in Aristotle and Aquinas, which has to do with the means by which we know the same reality. So under what aspect, by what means, do we know the articles of faith? In natural epistemology, um, Aquinas builds on Aristotle uh, in the Aristotelian tradition to argue that we understand universals through the, um, a kind of sensory medium of particulars. So he has a difference between what Aristotle would call the phantasms and the intelligible species. That is to say, when you encounter something outside, like that tree, for example, 
Um, the, the tree itself is leaving a kind of formal impression through the organs of our senses, in this case, the sense of sight. And that's, uh, that's what Aristotle called phantasm, effectively. Um, and then the intellect has the task of, ex of abstracting, if you will, the formality uh, that's a more universal notion. When I say, when I name it as tree, right, uh, not just a sort of mass of sensory impression, color, you know, uh, movement, other things like that that are impressing themselves as particulars onto my intellect, uh, the intellect has the ability to abstract. And we don't even think about the process, of course, uh, of making that move. Uh, but the, the formality by which faith operates, if you will, is different from the way that natural intellection operates, um, precisely because it's not the authority of natural reason as such that faith presumes, but the authority of God as revealer. Now, I'll say more about that uh, in just a minute. Um, but in one way, we could think about the, uh, the difference between natural knowledge and the knowledge of faith along the following lines. So natural knowledge um, can know things about God. Uh, we can know things about God. We can know claims about him. But it's mostly via negativa, that is, by negation. So by abstracting from experience, extra abstracting, again, from the tree, uh, it's always something like that in a classroom, whatever's outside the window, right? <laughs> uh, by abstracting from any sensory experience, we can begin to say more and more universal things, more universal things about who God is, um, about his perfection, his unity. We can make claims that we know must be true of God in the highest sense uh, because he's the cause of being. Now, we won't walk through all those proofs here today, but it's just to, to notice the distinction. We can know things about God, but we can't know the divine essence. Uh, and why is that? It's outside of our experience, right? Uh, there, there's no way uh, as, as such to sort of experience God in the, in the way we experience natural things. That's not to say we don't experience him in prayer in a certain sense and in other ways in the liturgy, but according to nature and natural reason, we don't have that kind of immediate sensory um, contact with God in a particular instantiation that leads us to a more immediate abstraction of an essence or something like that. Um, so we can know things about God, but we can't know the divine essence. So in some ways, um, this only highlights the, the, um, the radically other nature uh, of God himself, right? That God is so different and so far away, if you will, or it seems that way at times. Um, but a difference, right, between the act of natural knowing, um, even when we're knowing God, right, through that long process of abstraction to say truth itself, must be said more, more fully and more simply of God than it is of anything else. That's one of the analogical moves that Aquinas makes in the Summa. Another would be the idea of goodness, for example. Um, we don't always realize it, but when we say good of anything in creation, it's said most fully of God. Um, but the difference between claims like that, which are analogical, when we say goodness, oneness, or truth, things like that, uh, which are most true of the divine essence, even more so than they are of created being, uh, is that God himself is the object of faith, right? Um, he's the object of faith in a very direct sense. And so revelation opens the possibility of a kind of relationship to know someone who's radically other in one sense, that is outside the sphere of our natural experience, precisely because he has revealed himself. Um, so the mode of knowing, the way by, by which, formally speaking, we know things of faith is different from the way we know things according to natural reason. So this is an, an important point uh, because often people will confuse faith and especially more, um, let's say, rational or philosophical 
approaches to theology, like Thomism, for example, um, with a, just sort of an extension, if you will, of natural philosophy. It's sort of natural philosophy on steroids. So we made it to the divine essence and now using the same tools that we use to know God as true, good, and one philosophically. Now we're just gonna, we're just gonna press on, <laughs> if you will, into the void and know even more. Um, that's not exactly what's going on, right? Um, uh, and one of the, the key differences here has to do, well, not only with the, the bare fact that those truths are not accessible to natural reason, and that was why philosophy reached that end point in the first place, but because the object of faith is different. Uh, let me say more about that, about uh, God as the object of our faith. Um, God is the means as, as revealer by which we believe, right? So when I believe uh, things about the rain, for example, I might be right. <laughs> In this case, I was, right? Um, you know, I might be right about the, the whether or not it's going to rain, but that's really just an estimation. It doesn't have the certainty of science, right? Uh, I haven't proved that it's going to rain in the way that I could demonstrate, for example, um, you know, a mathematical conclusion or some other type of philosophical proof using the, the technical tools of logic or something like that. Uh, but I have good reasons for thinking it's going to rain. And that's a form of natural belief, uh, kind of estimation. Um, belief in the theological sense has parallels with that in that it extends beyond the evidence of natural reason, but the formality by which it operates is God's own self-revelation. So the, the credibility comes from God as revealer, which is different from saying, I've done a lot of research and I know a lot of certain things and I'm gonna estimate this possibility kind of in the middle space. Uh, this is what makes theological faith so different from Pascal's wager, for example. You've ever heard that phrase, right? That pa Pascal had this notion, well, I mean, you, you, you should probably believe in God because the consequences of not believing in him are so dire, right? <laughs> um, you know, and this really came out of his own Catholic piety, right, in the sense, uh, well, you know, we, we, we don't really know, but if I'm wrong <laughs> about this, well, there's a heaven and hell option, right? Uh, now, if I'm, if I'm right, let's say, as an atheist is right, for example, well, uh, the payoff, if you will, right, uh, in eternal terms is less compared to being right uh, as a Christian believer. That's really just making the same move uh, as, uh, as I do when I, when I say that it's going to rain later, right? It's an estimation. Uh, so theological faith operates uh, through the, the means, the means by which it operates is God's self-revelation, right? Uh, so the authority is not actually natural reason, but God himself, which is a higher authority even than reason. This doesn't terminate in fideism though, right? Um, now, fideism um, is, uh, you, you may be familiar with the term, fideism is um, a, uh, well, a, a sense in which faith just isn't reasonable, right? Uh, we reach a kind of threshold of natural reason, and then beyond that, there are other things that we were told to believe, and maybe we do believe, but we don't know why, and we can't know why, right? Uh, they're not actually rationally intelligible. Um, the, the Catholic claim, and certainly the claim of St. Thomas Aquinas, is that there is intelligibility, right, to the content, the material content of faith. And so Aquinas will make this distinction between the, mater the material and the formal object of faith. Uh, that is to say, God is the formal object. He's the one who we believe, right? Uh, so he as the direct object of faith, right, the act of faith itself is formally terminating in him. Not only as a kind of end point uh, where, you know, natural reason says, I, you know, I believe, I believe in, 
a God who's one, true, and good, right? Um, but theological faith has the ability, through his own self-revelation, to use that revelatory formality as a means of credibility, right? Um, so I'll say more about this in a minute, but um, all this only works if faith is something interior to us, right? Uh, if faith is just sort of evidence on the street, so to speak, um, the, uh, it's, it, well, it reduces it to sort of external testimony, right? Uh, and that's not quite what we want either. But just a bit more about um, faith itself in the order of certainty. So Aquinas compares acquired faith with, with infused faith in this sense, right? So acquired faith, um, again, this has to do with the rain, for example, um, also with certain types of miracles, right? Um, that is to say, uh, miracles as external signs are accessible to people who, whether they have faith or not. So even someone who doesn't have living faith would notice that was out of the ordinary, right? That, that wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't supposed to go down that way. Uh, of course, through the eyes of living faith, one would see much more. But the external sign, right, um, can uh, be accessible to a kind of acquired or natural faith in a certain sense. But infused faith, right, that's when we have the real formality uh, of God as revealer, uh, infused, if you will, gifted internally into our active faith as believers. So infused faith believes in God with God's own certainty, right? Uh, with God's own certainty. Um, whereas acquired faith believes on the evidence of miracles, right? Because you did that neat trick, I'm gonna sign up, right? Like I, I, you know, I'm listening, I'm paying attention now because I saw something supernatural. Now that might be a gateway for sure, but it's not the same thing uh, as having what we would term more colloquially a personal relationship, right? Um, but in a more technical sense, what's happening there for Aquinas is that the habitus, right? Um, that the intellectual habitus itself is not itself a, a process of discursive reason where you walk through a syllogistic process. Now, syllogisms, uh, I mean, if you do them right, <laughs> you don't commit fallacies, are, are certain, right? Uh, for Aquinas and Aerosol, they produce scientia or certain knowledge. Faith is a kind of scientia as well, uh, but it relies on God as revealer, God offering himself, if you will, as object. And as a formal object, in this, he's, again, he's not just a destination, he's a means by which we attain it. Um, so that sense of living faith, right, uh, is really uh, integral to any understanding of Catholic theology and uh, certainly from an optimistic perspective um, and is different from a lot of other modern accounts of faith. Uh, again, I mentioned Pascal, but you could mention other even, um, you know, more contemporary misunderstandings, perhaps uh, if you read Richard Dawkins or someone like that. Uh, you, if you haven't, don't bother. But, um, but uh, you know, um, who... who tend to reduce their impressions of faith to, yeah, a kind of natural estimation, right? Uh, or kind of a natural acquired faith or something like that, to the extent uh, that they're even willing to understand that. Um, but infused faith has a certainty, which isn't reduced to fideism, but is a real intellectual habitus, a real understanding, right? Uh, a real understanding, which is based on God's authority and God's initiative. Um, the, the Carmelites in Salamanca, a famous group of Thomists in the 17th century, put it the following way, right? Uh, by our natural powers, we can rely on testimony of God as author of nature, uh, also naturally knowable miracles, again. Um, but we cannot, without grace, rely on the testimony of God as author of grace about essentially supernatural truths. Um, so this, again, has to do with uh, the, the notion of illumination, right? Now, um, in the Augustinian tradition, illumination 
um, is a, a thicker concept, let's say, uh, even encompassing aspects of natural epistemology than it is for, for Thomas. But uh, faith is still a kind of intellectual illumination. So it is a true understanding, uh, a true understanding which perfects our natural knowledge, and, but also draws us closer to God. It's not just about more information, right? Because I have, I have the articles of faith, I have more to work with. I've just got more stuff, more pieces of knowledge. Um, infused faith, in this sense, really is, it's a mode of divine presence, right? Uh, which is different from the way in which God is present to us normally according to the order of nature. This is really key for understanding the Trinity um, and also understanding the relationship between the Trinity and the life of grace. If we have this particular understanding of the act of faith, not only is something superior to natural reason, but different in kind by its very operation from natural reason, what we're starting to uncover is the specific modality by which the Trinity is present to created persons uh, in the life of grace. So remember, God is object for faith uh, in a special sense. God can be the object of natural reason in as much as we allow transcendental ideas like truth or goodness to lead us back to him through philosophy, and that's great. We should be doing that. It disciplines the mind uh, and prepares us to understand and contemplate universals in a natural sense, which paves the way for supernatural contemplation. But faith itself uh, is, is, is different fundamentally. And the underlying reason for this difference has to do with how we understand grace and also how we understand the Trinity as having a kind of missio uh, ascending into the world, how we understand the Trinitarian persons as, as present in the church and in our individual lives as well. So bearing all that in mind, um, we've, we've talked about infused faith and the difference between knowing facts and having an illumination or an insight gifted by the formality of revelation that has a very personal uh, flavor to it as contemplation, right? Uh, and this is the beginning of a new relationship, a new modality of interacting with God. Um, so the concept of grace, uh, this, would be, this is the second part of the talk, right? Um, so the concept of grace follows from this. Grace is actually a, um, a more fundamental concept than faith. Uh, sometimes we jumble these terms together in our own um, uh, theological vocabulary, right, uh, as if they're interchangeable. But for St. Thomas Aquinas, there's actually a technical distinction between grace and what he calls the theological virtues. So the theological virtues are, are faith, hope, and love. And we've been talking about faith, but the principles that differentiate faith from natural knowing also differentiate infused hope and infused love or infused charity from natural analogous of the same. We can talk about hope and love in natural terms, right? It's not, uh, theology is not the first time we've heard of these concepts, but there's also a qualitative difference between their theological usage for Aquinas and the way in which they get used, even in the best sense, uh, on natural grounds. Um, okay, so uh, when we talk about the theological virtues, we've already talked about God as the special object of faith in a certain sense. Um, but this is because of a deeper underlying change, which Aquinas calls grace. So on the theological virtues themselves, um, this is in uh, the Prima Secundae question 62, article two, if you're, if you're interested um, in looking it up. Uh, there's a formal difference between objects of theological virtues and the objects of moral and intellectual virtues. So the theological virtues, again, faith, hope, and love, are different because of their object. Uh, than moral and intellectual virtue. 
God is the object of theological virtues as the last end of all things, surpassing the knowledge of natural reason entirely. But for intellectual and moral virtues, their objects are, the, are those things which are comprehensible to natural reason. Um, although reason is only satisfied by beatitude, this is not a rationalism. Right? The object and end is still formally outside the grasp of reason itself. Um, so just a bit, uh, in terms of intellectual and moral virtue, we, we won't need to get too deep into the, that distinction there. But in some ways, you could think about the difference between what Aquinas and Aristotle call speculative and practical intellect. Now, um, all that means, really, it's not that you have multiple intellects, right, uh, sort of all stuffed into your brain or something, but there are different operations, right, uh, different ways you can use knowledge. Uh, are you thinking about what to do with your knowledge, right, uh, how to apply it in the world, or even how to apply it to a very simple external motion, like walking from point A to point B, or um, then, then it, that's really practical intellect, right? Um, speculative intellect is just thinking about ideas for their own sake, right, which is also important. Um, but moral virtue uh, is more deeply instantiated in the body, uh, governs uh, not only the, um, the lower sensitive appetites, but also all sorts of practical operation, right? Um, and Aquinas, this is interesting, um, you know, he says that moral virtue is actually, and he's following Aristotle here, moral, action, moral virtue is actually what makes us a good person as opposed to a person who knows true things. Right, you can know a lot of truth, right, and then not not always be acting out of it, right? <laughs> um, so the sanctification of the moral virtues is also really, really important for Aquinas, and uh, we won't have time to get into it here. But the way in which faith, hope, and love perfect those lower faculties uh, is is really intrinsically important to the life of sanctification. So moral virtue itself and intellectual virtue become elevated and participate uh, in the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love. But there is a distinction between the two. Uh, and if we want to get at the notion of Trinitarian indwelling and the connection to Beatitude, it's really, uh, it finds its root in this distinctive character of the theological virtues. So um, one way to understand this, again, if you go back to, uh, in terms of grace itself, right? If you go back to, this is in the beginning of the Prima Secundae, right? Um, so in the very opening, Aquinas has a discussion of happiness, of human happiness. Um, and he's trying to make the claim that reason itself is ordered towards a happiness which exceeds what we can achieve by natural means. So there's almost a kind of paradox written into the human person, uh, which leaves us disposed for a happiness that we can't actually attain by our own powers. And he walks through a lot of possible answers. Well, maybe material goods or riches uh, or power would make us happy. He discards that fairly quickly. That's not it. <laughs> Uh, what about even philosophy, contemplating the forms, right? Uh, if, if the human intellect is made for universals, what about if we just, we just used our speculative intellects to think about mo the most universal things all the time? That could make you happy. It could make you happy in a sense, right? It's a real good. But it's not the, the fullest happiness possible, right, to the human person. And so eventually Aquinas follows that pattern of increasing universality all the way up to the divine essence and says that, in the final analysis, intellectual creatures like angels and human persons are, are made for, um, to, to contemplate the divine essence. And that's beatitude, right? Uh, to just, to be, um, to allow our intellect and our will to know and love uh, the, the divine essence, the divine nature. 
Um, but then he quickly, in the rest of the Prima Secunde, um, begins to develop um, an understanding of our need for some particular divine interven intervention, if you will, to achieve that end. So um, we're left again in a kind of paradox where you have this possibility, let's say, of being perfected and receiving a, a happiness which is the greatest possible perfection of the human person from the divine essence. But when you look at the finitude of human nature, what we actually are, uh, it's a real good, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a real good certainly in the order of creation. We have a lot, lot going for ourselves in one sense. Um, but in other ways, right, we, um, we're limited by the, the kind of scope or potency of our own nature. And that limitation um, is, it will necessarily fall short of the, the actual infinity of divine being, right? Uh, so there's nothing in our nature, and you know, here Aquinas follows Aristotle again, di differentiating between uh, active and passive potencies. Um, the distinction there is just between whether or not um, passive potency is the soccer ball being kicked, right? Uh, and active potency is me kicking the soccer ball, right? So if I kick the soccer ball, I'm imparting motion to the ball, right? Uh, whereas converse, if I'm the soccer ball, I don't particularly want to be kicked, but if I, if I were, I'd be rolling down the field, right? And I, I'd be, there'd be a passive potency in the soccer ball to do that thing. That is to say, if you tried it with like, um, you know, a 50 pound square chunk of metal, it would not roll down the field, right? There's no real passive potency. You'd probably break your foot um, and it wouldn't go anywhere, right? Uh, so, but there is something real about the soccer ball uh, that has a passivity to act in that way. So Aquinas would say in neither of those senses uh, do we have a potentiality for beatitude, right? Uh, which leaves us in a kind of predicament, right? Uh, there's this one thing, let's say, that would impart lasting happiness, fullness of life, an overflowing joy, an intellectual perfection that, that just completely perfects and saturates our nature. But there's nothing within our nature that's able to act for that or be able to act, be acted upon to be kicked like the soccer ball to achieve that. Um, so in one sense, this is a paradox. In another sense, um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's an anticipation of, an, of a further divine intervention, which is foreseen in divine wisdom, perhaps not always foreseen by us. I think not, perhaps not foreseen by us in a more speculative sense or in the history of the world, but on a personal level also, grace, um, and its interaction with us is also, it's, it's unexpected sometimes, and it represents a wisdom which can instrumentalize even our personal past history, for example, all sorts of things towards the finality of beatitude if we let it, right? Uh, but there's a higher wisdom in what God is doing. So what appears as paradox is actually more anticipation. In the same way that potency anticipates act, um, potency, again, is the ability for the soccer ball to be kicked or me to kick the soccer ball. Um, but when you think about potency in, in relation to act, there's a primacy to act, right? Uh, if you think about the, the tree, the seed of the tree, uh, just an, or, uh, an acorn, right? Um, now, there's a whole oak tree in there, not physically, right? If you open it up, there's no oak tree inside. <laughs> um, but there is in potentia, uh, potentially an oak tree. That is like, formally speaking, that seed has everything it needs to become the oak tree. If you treat it right, if you plant it, water it, you know, let it do its thing, it's, it's gonna become the oak tree. So, but it's more perfect when it's the oak tree rather than the acorn, right? Um, so to have that sense of potentiality uh, written into the paradox 
right, of being human. That's not to say we have um, an active or a passive natural potency for beatitude. We don't. Um, but when you think about uh, what seems like a paradox or a lack to us, there's a great potentiality there from God's perspective, right, uh, for the human person to be perfected through the instrumentality of the incarnation, through Jesus Christ, and through this particular concept of grace. That's a different kind of potency, right? Uh, it's a different kind of potency. And it's a, it's a kind of potency that Thomas Aquinas and in the later Dominican commentators will call obediential. Um, and and the, this notion of obediential potency, just briefly, it's not natural active potency or natural passive potency, like the soccer ball, right? Um, <clears throat> but it is a, um, it's something that all creatures have written into them just by being creatures, um, that God can interact through his creative causality with everything he's made in a unique and creative manner, right? Um, that doesn't have to operate through the normal causal um, process of nature. Now, often he does. I mean, his motion is present in the acorn growing into the oak tree. Uh, he sustains that whole process at the level of being from one end to the other, working through the natural process. Um, but there's also the ability, if you think about a miracle, for example, how does it work, right? Uh, there's, there's no natural explanation for the miracle, which is the whole point, right? Uh, but, you know, we, even just colloquially, we, we think, that, I mean, we believe that God somehow, you know, uh, interacted, right? Uh, interrupted, if you will, natural processes. But by bringing something out, by healing a limb, for example, right? or raising the dead, um, or doing something else that's obviously supernatural and unexpected, you have a kind of particular mode of divine causality, which is interacting with created stuff, right? Um, so God can do that in the case of miracles, but grace isn't exactly a miracle. Uh, I mean, it is in one sense, right? <laughs> it's supernatural, absolutely supernatural. But in another sense, it's also deeply fitting for the human person. Right. Uh, whereas a, a miracle could encompass things like that are more like a magic trick that is changing an elephant into a giraffe, for example, or I don't know, something like that. Right. Um, there's not a lot of wisdom or ratio in doing that. I don't think, at least from my perspective, what what would you be accomplishing? Right. Um, but in the human person, because we as rational creatures, we have this capacity to know and love intellect and will. Um, to elevate the human person to become capable of beatitude is deeply fitting, right? It is supernatural, uh, but it's also deeply fitting, uh, precisely because the end is capable of perfecting us, even if we lack the means to get there. So by giving us the means, we're able to be drawn into a supernatural perfection. And this is what um, you know, Aristotle calls a connaturality, uh, that virtue is connatural to us. Uh, form is connatural to potency. So to be oak tree is connatural to the acorn. Uh, that is to say, it's a fitting perfection of the nature. If it, if it were to grow into, well, some, something totally different, then it probably wasn't an acorn at all. Um, but if it, were, if it were to grow into sort of a, a shorter sickly tree or to be you know, only partially actuated, and I mean, the, what's most perfect is to become a full tree, right? Uh, but there's, in the second act of that being, there's connaturality, it's fitting. Uh, the same is said of virtue in the natural sense. Uh, to be a virtuous man uh, is connatural to, to being a man or being a human person, right? Uh, you, you can be human uh, without being virtuous, but it's better to be virtuous. It's more perfect, it's more human uh, to be virtuous in the natural sense. 
So grace is a perfection like that of human nature, right? It enables that kind of, of connaturality where we're participating, right, uh, more deeply in who we are according to the pattern of God's plan. Now, this has everything to do with Trinitarian image, which is where this is going, right? Um, <clears throat> in terms of what it means to be alive in the image of the Trinity, um, as having discovered something fundamental about ourselves by the light of faith, right? Uh, not so much through natural philosophy, which I love philosophy, I'm, I'm a huge fan, but it's not the same, right, as divine illumination and the life of faith. Uh, it complements and it helps a great deal, but it's not a substitute for, as Aquinas says at the beginning of the Prima Secunde, it won't make you happy the way beatitude will make you happy. In terms of grace uh, itself in relation to the theological virtues, um, grace is in the essence of the soul, whereas the virtues are in the powers. Now, the, the reason that's important um, for understanding Trinitarian indwelling and understanding how, how faith itself and hope and love come about uh, is, is simply this. If you go back to the, the sort of proportionality problem, if you want to call it that, uh, that we have in relation to beatitude and, and the ultimate happiness that it represents, uh, grace fixes that, if you will, but it's, it's um, in Aquinas' more technical language, it's a quality in the essence of the soul, right? Um, but faith, hope, and love are in the powers. So faith is in the intellect, hope and love are in the will, right? Um, now that's important when we think about grace in relation to Trinitarian indwelling um, for a number of reasons. So um, we've already seen how faith Right, uh, changes the way in which we relate to God as object uh, and how much difference that makes uh, at a formal level. Again, the, the act of belief is different when we say it supernaturally than the act of belief according to nature. Um, that's the difference between, again, the, 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 the gifted formality and connaturality that's going to draw us towards beatitude and our natural potency. That is to say, whatever I can accomplish by kicking soccer balls and well, also just by interacting with nature and knowing things, right? Uh, there's a difference there. Um, but when we think about grace and instrumentality or, or um, incarnational instrumentality in the, in the moral life, um, the, uh, the theological virtues become an important means in which the, the image of God, right, that's uh, imprinted on every rational creature is not only healed and restored from the effects of sin, but elevated and uh, extended, amplified, if you will. Um, St. Catherine of Siena, who's a Dominican saint, um, described the Trinity in relation to the moral life as a kind of mirror, right? If you think about looking at yourself in a mirror, you see a clear image of yourself, right? Um, and that the Trinity provides that kind of exemplarity for the growth in the life of grace that we're called to. So if you think of the divine image, that's the mirror for St. Catherine, right? Uh, and we come to see and understand ourselves in him. That by becoming alive in faith, hope, and love, we actually come to know ourselves better, know more about ourselves. Um, and we come to understand our own teleology, our own directedness more clearly. Why is that? Um, because according to Thomas Aquinas uh, and also St. Augustine, um, there's what's called an image of God in the human person. Now, if you think about the, the notion of an image, uh, an example you could use is a, is a coin, right? If you think about a, a minted coin with the face of the emperor or the king or Abraham Lincoln or whoever imprinted on it, right? Uh, so there's an image engraved. Um, and you can think again about whether or not the image is perfect. 
Now, um, image in this sense applies um, when Aquinas is talking about the Trinity. This is particularly in relation to the Son's relationship to the Father. Uh, image uh, implies similitude of nature, right? Uh, similitude of nature. That is, a perfect image shares in the nature uh, of the one of whom it's an image. So a father and a son, for example, uh, have a kind of, uh, there's a kind of perfection, right, uh, of image between the two. Um, because they both share the same nature, human nature. Uh, and there's also other more accidental features that might be impressed as well. Um, now, the son is the perfect image of the father, according to Aquinas. Why? Uh, be, because he shares the same essence with the father, they're both God. There's no actual distinction in the order of being between the two, right? Uh, there's no essential distinction. Um, we'll talk more about uh, Trinitarian relations and subsistence in, in the seminar section of this talk. Um, but there's also an imperfect sense of image you could speak about, right? Um, <clears throat> which is the king in relation to the coin. So Caesar in relation to the image that's impressed on the coin. So we're not God in this sense, right? Um, but we are in his image. And so from the beginning of our existence, we were like, as it were, the coin with the image of God impressed upon it. Now that's more than a metaphor for Aquinas and Augustine, and here's why. Um, it's a nice metaphor, even just a little level of metaphors, right? Uh, but as a real, uh, more technical way of understanding grace and beatitude, what it's giving us is a way of understanding our rational faculties of knowing and loving, intellect and will, um, in relation to the divine uh, persons and their processions. And we won't get into it here because it's, uh, it's a long story and complicated, right? But the, those two operations of knowing and loving, intellect and will, Aquinas and Augustine and the Latin theological tradition derive the personal distinctions, right, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from those operations of knowing and loving, right? Uh, so if you ever wonder why, you can say that the Trinity is not three different gods, for example, uh, it's one God, three persons. To be a person in this sense, right, uh, is, a, is a technical sense, a technical term for Aquinas, which means the individuated subsistence of a rational nature. He's following Boethius in that regard. And um, the person subsists, just very briefly, again, we won't, we won't rehearse, uh, there's, there's a lot of, lot of else going on in Aquinas' Trinitarian theology, but they subsist by their mode of procession, right? So the son, um, as generated, right, uh, as begotten by the father, right? And um, you, so there, it's, it's precisely that pattern, right, uh, of knowing. Right, and then also the procession of will, of loving, uh, by which the three persons uh, are individuated, if we will, right, without in, um, introducing an essential distinction. So we don't say that one has more of the divine nature than the other. Now, again, there are a lot of technical reasons for that, uh, and we could spend uh, for, well, lots of time on that if we if we want. I'm happy to answer questions about it, but for for, for now, if you notice that that's that's the image, right, in terms of what we are. Um, it's rooted in who God is in a way that other creatures aren't, right? Um, this is, and this is Augustine's language. Um, all creation bears the trace of the Trinity. Not all of creation, not all creatures bear the image of the Trinity. So um, if you see smoke in relation to fire, uh, you know, that you know the fire's there, even if you don't see the fire. Um, but a lot of created being uh, has that kind of relationship with the divine essence, right? It's a, it's a reminder that it's a, it's a causal remnant. What caused the smoke? 
the fire caused the smoke, very obviously, right? I don't see the fire, but I, I, I reason that the fire is there, and I reason pretty, pretty, um, pretty well in this sense, right? Um, so, but an image is different. Uh, an image presents you with a likeness of the fire itself, right? Uh, so to be confronted with a human person in this sense, right, is to be confronted with an image of God, an image of the divine. Uh, the next step, though, of the, of the whole moral life is how we could better image, how we could better image the divine. And that's where grace and the, the kind of amplification of, of the moral life that happens because of that essential change because we're now able to act in a connatural and virtuous way, which isn't only natural, right, but has this supernatural key that's now oriented towards beatitude, that's operating through, if you will, God's self-revelatory engagement with us as image, right, by revealing himself, uh, that we're able to more effectively display the image, as it were, um, to the rest, of, uh, the rest of creation and to other human persons as well. Um, okay. Well, I think I'm reaching the end of my time here, but I'll um, just a few more things uh, about the invisible missions of the Trinity um, to, uh, to, to, to conclude here. So, um, so in terms of invisible missions, I, I mentioned this term earlier, uh, and this really has to do with how, how does God come to us, right, in faith, hope, and love? How is he coming to us? How is he making himself present? We've already seen how in faith he's providing a kind of formal means by which uh, it, and it's the same thing, at least in the abstract, if you think about a logical syllogism, what's the middle term that makes the demonstration possible? Uh, there's always some principle, if you will, right, that's positioned, uh, that gets you from point A to, the, to, the, to point B, to the conclusion, right? Uh, so the revelation itself, God's self-revelation as formal object, is, is kind of playing that role for Aquinas. Um, but the invisible missions are really the means by which this takes place. So even if you look at the Catechism, uh, you can see uh, traces of this doctrine. So this is uh, 687, uh, for example. Um, this text emphasizes the connection between faith in Christ and access to the spirit of truth. Um, and uses the text of John 14, 17 to reinforce this, where Christ tells his disciples that the world cannot accept the spirit of truth because it neither sees nor knows it. Then Christ tells us, you know it because it remains with you and will be with you. And that sense of the word remaining with us, even in history and even in the temporality of our individual lives. Uh, but so there's something essential here about the connection between the Son and the Spirit in particular and the life of the church. Um, and again, 687 in the Catechism tells us that unlike the world, which does not know the Spirit, Quote, those who believe in Christ know the spirit because he dwells with them, end quote. Uh, so there's a connection here between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a, in a particular sense uh, in the faithful and in the church and access to what the catechism terms and scripture itself terms the spirit of truth. Now, there's a joint mission. Again, this is just in six, this is 689 in the catechism, a joint mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, again, this is a quote from the Catechism. When the Father sends his word, he also sends his breath. Right? Uh, it's a sense of word and breath as, as uh, ascending, right, of the second and the third persons of the Trinity. Uh, it paints an image of Christ, uh, both his body uh, and the church as temple. Uh, that is a space which is inhabited by indwelling. Um, 
Now, there's other uh, texts from the Catechism in that section, too, that reinforce this. But um, for a Thomistic connection, if you look at question 43, Article 3, um, or really all of, all, of, all of 43, which is the close of, of Aquinas' treatment of the Trinity in the Summa, um, he, he makes a connection between indwelling, this sense of indwelling, and the reality of sanctifying grace. So remember, grace is the means by which this recreation of the person that solves the proportionality problem, if you will, <laughs> that confronts us when we think about beatitude uh, in relation to our created nature. Uh, grace is the, the reality or the means by which that's solved, if you will. But there's a connection between that and the indwelling of the Trinity, right? And that's the connection Aquinas makes in question 43. So in the said contra of Article 3, he says the following. Augustine says, and this is a, a section of De Trinitate, uh, uh, Book 3, Chapter 4, that, quote, the Holy Ghost proceeds temporally for the creature's sanctification. But mission is a temporal procession. Since then, the creature's sanctification is by sanctifying grace. It follows that the mission of the divine person is only by sanctifying grace. Um, in the Corpus, he uh, expands on this, saying that um, as God is the cause, existing in the effects which participate in his goodness, that this, there's a common mode, right, in which all created being participates in God. But there's a different mode by which the human person as image who has been graced, if you will, who's been grasped, if you will, by Trinitarian indwelling is going to participate in God as well. Now, the first mode, again, is just according to, to natural causality. So there's nothing in reality, the tree outside or, or anything, that doesn't owe its being to God, that we can't trace back to him, right? Just by following the causal trail, the smoke leading to the fire, as it were. So to use Augustine's language, all of reality is a trace. Uh, but the human person, particularly alive in grace, becomes a divinized image. Uh, and so there's this other mode by which God himself is present to the creature in sanctifying grace. Um, and it's this. So there's a special mode, Aquinas tells us, for the rational creature, that God is present as the object known in the knower, as the object loved in the lover. If you remember back at the beginning when I said there's a difference between the way faith knows and the way natural reason knows, now they're deeply complementary realities, of course, um, but that mode by which faith knows, right, it's, it's that's, this is it, right? It's the special mode by which God is present as the object known in the knower, right? So rather than following a trail of causal breadcrumbs, if you will, back to know God in a philosophical sense, God has made himself in a very direct and personal way the object of our knowing and also the object of our love, right? As the object loved in the lover, according to hope and charity. Um, so by sanctifying grace and the sending of the Holy Spirit, we possess and enjoy freely the Spirit's presence. Um, okay. Well, I think I'm at the end of my time uh, for now, but um, I'll conclude just by, um, yeah, just by recapping the three sections. Um, so we talked about um, the nature of faith itself and its special object. We talked about grace, what it is, uh, and then also how it's connected to the Trinity. But then we closed with an understanding of image and Trinitarian indwelling. You know, all these are, are aspects of Aquinas' uh, theology that paint a very unique and, and I think very compelling picture of, of anthropology. That is, what does it mean to be a human person? 
what does it mean um, to, to understand ourselves uh, as human persons in relation to the rest of creation and in relation to each other, most especially in relation to God. Um, and, and having that kind of anthropological understanding of the human person in light of the finalities of grace and beatitude um, encourages us not only in our own personal lives of faith, uh, but as apostles in the world as well, to be more perfect, more effective images of the grace that we have received. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah. So I wanted a clarification. Um, are we images of God invited to share in the divine essence? Is that correct, or how does, how does that work? Yeah, we, we participate. Aquinas will say uh, grace is nothing other than a participation in the divine nature. So the question was um, whether uh, whether grace helps us to participate in the divine essence. Is that, is that right, or am I... Well, the distinction right, between... Grace, yeah. Right, <clears throat> image and um, sharing in nature. So, like the coin versus oh, yeah. the sun. Yep, we're, we're still coin. Way. We're always going to be coin. You know, right. we're, all, uh, we're we're never going to actually be God. Right. Uh, but we, even uh, according to nature, we do participate. Um, and this has to do with um, there's a real relationship between our being uh, and God. You know, so you have to be careful about how you use analogy in this sense, because you yeah. don't you don't want to say that um, you know we participate in God in a, as if we're sort of you know an accident in hearing in His substance or something like that, or, or that that's not that's not right. Um, but uh, but but it is the case that by by being caused by Him, uh, we we participate in Him by by being His effects, if you will, and by being a similitude. Uh, of his nature. So there, again, if you take the idea of goodness, for example, every time we use it in creation, you know, there's an analogical predication going on there. We're saying it's, it's good in a sense, uh, but what's really good, the, the definition of the term good is the divine essence, even if we don't realize it, right? We, we throw these terms around all the time without uh, thinking about it, right? But, uh, but analogically, it's really most truly a statement of who God is. Now, um, the human person as rational, right, uh, as, a, as, a cre as a creature caused and created, he is in a kind of participatory relationship with God uh, along those lines. But indwelling changes the mode. Um, and another way to think about this is the relation between ourselves and God. So it, there's a, a mixed relation, that Aquinas will say, between ourselves and God. That is to say, we are really related to him. He's only logically related to us. That is to say, we, we don't add anything to God or change him in any way. Um, it's, it's similar to like, if, if you think about yourself metaphysically uh, with Aristotle's categories, am I, there, you could talk about the color of someone's hair, for example, right? Um, you know, you could also talk about virtue on a deeper level as a, as a habituation of the powers. It's, it changes you, right? I mean, it changes you as a person to become virtuous in all sorts of good ways, right? Yeah. Um, but the fact that you're standing, um, you know, uh, you know, in a, that you, that you have a logical relationship to, let's say, some, someone else or something that happens to someone else, you can know about it, right? But it doesn't actually uh, change you in the same way, uh, right? So, so, the, so the, the point is, um, God's not, you know, uh, we, by participating in him, we don't change him somehow or add right. to him. But, but by being really related to him, we, are, we owe everything to him, and we, 
our being is contingent and dependent on his, in a sense. So that doesn't change, but the mode by which that real relation is rooted in us, if you will, that is changing. Uh, and it's not that the first is going away, it's that there's this elevation happening. So there's a deeper mode, we could say. And so would you yeah. say that it like is, comes to a culminating point when we, when we see the beatific vision? And yeah. The, and so what is that? Is that when we, <laughs> we, like, yeah. when we have that, when we are in heaven, and I assume hopefully we get there. Yeah, God will, yeah, yeah. When, when yeah. we're in heaven <laughs> and we see the beatific vision, what, what, what is that? Are we, is it the culmination of what we're talking about? Of, yeah. This That's a great question. Yeah. Essence. Yeah. Because we're still right. We're still not the divine essence. We're still in the image of God, but it's like we've been filled up, right? Like we're still ourselves. Like it, it, we never stop being ourselves as human persons. And even in beatitude, you know, the, there's still a reference to the body. So it's not an escape from the body. Uh, even for the saints right now, who are separated from their bodies, obviously, there's something intrinsic about the rational soul as human which has reference to the body. And if you remember back in the beginning when I was talking about knowing and the phantasms, when I'm looking at the tree and, uh, I mean, my normal contact with universals is through the senses, right? That, that's something Aquinas really doubles down on uh, in an Aristotelian mode and doesn't allow for a kind of, uh, in this sense, it would be a sort of Platonic escape, right? I mean, you know, there's plenty of versions of Christian Platonism which are perfectly orthodox, right? <laughs> they're not some they're heretical, they're just not Thomistic, right? <laughs> uh, but so Aquinas' account of beatitude um, relies on, it, it, it remains in reference to this sense of, of bodily uh, instantiation in the senses, but so the direct contact with God, the light of glory, is what's informing the mind in terms of the, um, this was a problem in the Middle Ages, what you're sort of hitting on here, right? That uh, if God is infinite, let's say, um, you know, usually when I know the tree, again, that's, I'm going to keep using that example because it's right outside. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I know the tree, it's not like the whole tree is in my head right. according to the mode that it is out there, right. right? Like it's, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, <laughs> but there is a similitude of the tree. There's a mode by which the tree is present in my intellect, uh, formally speaking. So the concept tree connected with the sense impression made by that tree is like, so I know, I know, I know about trees, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, habitual hard you know, knowledge about trees that I'm relying on. But I also know like that sense impression is connected with that, that uh, universal form, you know, right. but I'm accessing the universal by abstracting. Right. right. And so um, when you think about the divine essence, right. the, it's the light of glory, Aquinas will say, right, uh, that's providing the kind of intelligible species that the mind is, is thinking about, if you will. So it's an analogy again, right? Uh, but so yeah. it's similar to natural sensation, but it's not the case that we're using our bodily senses in the same way to kind of interact with yeah. divinity because you couldn't, right? It's it, because it's universal and immaterial, there's nothing to make an impression on the senses in the same way, but it is impedible to the intellect. Uh, and so God makes himself available in a, a way that our intellect can digest, you might say. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the technical term is the light of glory, right? Which isn't a sort of um, different species or similitude that God creates and gives to us as like a model. It really is a participation uh, in his light, um, even though we can't um, yeah, plant the whole tree in our minds as such. But that's also true in nature, right? I mean, there's a mode by which we understand the real thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's there are parallels there, although it's different. 
because it's non-sensory for one thing. But again, you, you wouldn't say, there's no way to say that the other, the tree is inside, even though that's obviously a contingent created reality. It's not, there's no problem of infinity or, or anything like that there. But uh, you know, the, what, by what mode is the other present? to me, right? Uh, that's the, the, the deeper question. And Aquinas has ways of, of talking about that, but there's, there's a, a certain analogical remove. Uh, one is a move away from the senses, but also is a refusal to retain um, certain understandings of, again, this is more technical in the 13th century, these understandings of intelligible species that were effectively denying the beatific vision, right? Saying like, you, you can't really you can't like behold the divine essence. You need you need a model or some or some kind of created, intelligible species that that is understandable to you, and right. that's yes. as close to beatitude as you're going to get. Aquinas he's not afraid to double down on theological claims, basically, and say no, no, no. This is this is the Christian faith, and our you know academic account of that is going to bend uh, to conform to that. Still producing a, a synthesis, but we're not going to make. Um, you know, the, the content of the faith, the material content of the faith subject to pre-existing philosophical categories at that level of remove, right? Uh, to, if you were to insist, for example, that, well, you know, that's certain, whatever version of Aristotelianism you might be employing is incompatible with that. Well, you know, we'll, we'll come up with a different version of Aristotle. <laughs> I think that's basically, um, basically what's going on. But I mean, so uh, he, he refuses Averroism also, and these other sort of, um, extremely naturalistic understandings of Aristotle that would, that's a, an interpretation of Aristotle's uh, notion of the eternity of the world and, and other sort of ideas about natural being that really, there's a big crisis in Paris in the 1260s about that as well. But, you know, so that's, um, yeah, I, I think, I, but I mean, Aquinas' synthesis is remarkable in that regard because of its dexterity intellectually, certainly, but, but also because of, um, his reverence for the material content of the faith, for the, the mysteries of the faith, you know, and his ability to combine those things, right, without making intellectual sacrifices, right, or without, um, but quite frankly, they're just striving for a higher synthesis, you know, yeah. so, yeah. Mind if I ask one more? Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, using again the example of the tree, we can, like, say I'm a baby and I can <clears throat> see my first tree, I can know that in some sense, and I'll get to know it more and more, and then say I study in college, you know, a lot yeah. about trees, right? You major like in trees, more, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. You and you have yeah. to know more and more about it, and in some yeah. sense, there's like, there's almost, I can never exhaust yeah. what I can know about trees. Yeah. So how is that, and that's in like the natural sense on this earth, how does that trans translate into heaven when we're able to behold the divine presence? Because it doesn't seem like there could be a, a threshold to that, but in some sense, is there because we are in heaven, Beatified. Yeah, because, yeah, so one way to think about it, I think, uh, so the question is, um, <clears throat> can we ever, um, there's a certain sense in which natural knowledge progresses, almost seemingly to, to an infinity, right. but there must be a limit, right? Uh, you can learn a lot about trees, but there must be a, an endpoint to that eventually, or at least it's imaginable. Mm -hmm. Is that this, is, is heaven like that as well? Because heaven's an, an eternity. I mean, you have a lot of time, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I mean, you, you can learn a lot about trees in four years in college, right? I mean, I, I don't know. would you want like a thousand years on trees, right? I think you might run out of material. Is that a concern? Too? Yeah, okay. yeah. 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 So I, one way to think about it is in terms of the nature of sciences for Aristotle and Aquinas. So, um, 
theology is a higher science than philosophy is a higher science than biology. And that's not a, um, a dig or anything at any one science or anything like that. It's just a, for, for Aquinas and Aristotle, it's just a statement about reality, that there's a hierarchical nature to science. I think today we, my experience has always been that the modern academy treats different disciplines as siloed effectively, right? That's a term people use, siloing, intellectual siloing, where you're just kind of in your very narrow and very deep and tall sort of subfield. And so interdisciplinary studies try to break out of those, right? And um, another way to think about uh, the, the organization of knowledge, though, is, is according to a hierarchical organization of sciences, so that the object of certain sciences gets more universal as it goes up. So philosophy, for example, classically was the queen of the sciences, right? And that um, it, it deals with more fundamental principles that underlie natural biology, for example, uh, because it talks about even motion in terms that are more abstract than natural biology. And that's good, right? Uh, and it can actually help you be a better biologist um, if you have the higher science. It's not the same thing as having the science of biology, though, right? To, or, um, you know, in a more specific case of trees, right? To have, there's just a lot you can know. And scientifically, what you're knowing for Aristotle and Aquinas is the principles that underlie it. What makes this true? What unifies my experience in, in a way that's formally consistent, you know? And so you can identify principles, things that, are, that make this tree not that tree, for example, you know? Um, but there is a finite limit to that in the order of contingent creation, right? Given enough time, especially eternity, you could imagine at least running out of stuff within yeah. a certain science. But the higher the science gets, the more universal it gets, and the more, um, now it's not infinite yet, right? right. Uh, but the closer you get to the science of the divine essence itself, which is a, sciencia is just a knowledge, it's just Latin for knowing, right? Uh, the higher you get to that, the closer you get to the infinity of the object itself. So that the natural limits even of the object are not gonna be there in the same way. So when God makes himself the object of, of faith as a kind of science, right? You know, as a, as a way of knowing, you know, he's offering, if you will, participation in his own infinity, right? And so the science of theology, um, in one sense it's an academic discipline in a university, right? But it's really based on what Aquinas calls the science of sacra doctrina, which is the first question of the Summa. So this science is, he tells us very clearly, again, in question one, it's the science of God and of the blessed. So whose knowledge is it? Whose sciencia? It's God's, first and foremost. Secondarily, the blessed, the saints in heaven who are participating in what? His self-understanding, his contemplation of his own divine essence. Um, it's a, so that's what all of this is leading back to. So the beatific vision in that sense, again, what we have in this life by faith is an analogous participation in what the blessed will have, which itself is in a participation in, in God's own self-knowing and loving, right? Um, so the point is you're getting closer and closer to a science that really doesn't have any limits, <laughs> as it were, yeah. right? Uh, doesn't have the normal limits imposed by creation. Um, yeah, so I think, well, I think we can rest assured we won't get bored in that sense, oh, right? Sure. Uh, or run out of stuff, uh, even, because I mean, I think you would, even certain lower sciences, and that's not a dig against them or anything, they're just, they're lower by nature, right? Uh, so, um, you know, you could imagine, given enough time, possibly running out of material or reaching the, the end, or reaching a point where you really had mastered it all, right? 
but that will never quite be the case with beatitude because it's not our science, man. It's, it's God's science that we participate in, right? And so he's knowing and loving the, the, um, the eternity and the infinity of his own being, right? Uh, and sharing that with us effectively, to put it more colloquially, right? We're, we're sort of participating in that. So, yeah. Does that answer your question or? Yeah. Kind of? yeah okay. That, all right. Great. Thank okay. You. All right. Um, yeah. yeah. Somebody else ask a question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, there's a very specific way in which the Son dwells with us when we receive the Holy Eucharist. Um, mm-hmm. Of course. And so, I guess my question is is we, we have grace a lot. The indwelling of the Trinitarian persons allows us of, to receive grace and to um, receive this potency for beatitude. Right? Mm-hmm. So is it, in a sense, between the three persons, is it a, a different way for each of the three persons, or is it the same, um, basically the same grace? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so it's, um, it's all three persons indwell. Um, but uh, this gets more technical, right? But that's all right. Uh, it's, uh, only the Son and the Spirit have missio, are sent. So the miss, mission, or missio in Latin, just means to be sent, right? Um, but uh, because there's no essential difference between them, the, the Trinity itself is what indwells, what dwells within the rational creature. Sanctifying grace is that indwelling. Like they're coterminous, uh, right? So it's... Um, uh, now, you, more technically, you can talk about the, the missio of the Son versus the Spirit and, and the sort of modes of personal presence, right? Uh, that's sort of particular to each one. Uh, but it's the whole Trinity that's indwelling through sanctifying grace. Um, and, and in terms of the Eucharist, for example, now that's in some ways more associated with the Son, right? Um, that builds on an existing framework, if you will, that's, in, that's instantiated by sanctifying grace. So it, it's fruitful when you already have grace, so to speak, right? Um, and it's one of three, the most perfect of the three sacraments that intrinsically perfect uh, the life of sanctification. The first is baptism, um, confirmation, right? And then Eucharist. Um, so the other sacraments also help us out, no doubt, right? <laughs> um, but what the sacraments are doing effectively, they're, they're instrumental causes of modes of sanctifying grace. So if you think about Trinitarian indwelling stretched out across your whole life, um, you know, some people remember their baptism if you're a convert or something like that. Um, I'm a cradle Catholic. I, I don't remember my baptism, right? It was, it, it was done to me at a very young age. Uh, there are pictures, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago, and there's a long time from that moment until, you know, whenever God chooses to gather us to himself, right? And so decades, decades of time, lots and lots of sacramental involvement, you might say. Um, so the sacraments, like the, in the case of the Eucharist or any of the sacraments, they're, they're real instrumental causes. They're, they're um, efficient instrumental causes. But they, what they're affecting is it, they're, they're a modal effect of sanctification. So again, indwelling and growth in charity, uh, the growth in the life of sanctification according to the mode we've described, it's a kind of connaturality in this sense, right? It's like a, it's a, it, in the same way you can grow in virtuous, uh, virtuous behavior and virtuous disposition throughout your whole life. You can grow in the habituation and, the, and in the act of, of the three theological virtues 
faith, hope, and love throughout your whole life and develop a whole other structure of habits, even on a natural sense, that support and sustain and enrich that. Uh, that's what the saints are doing, right? When you see that, like, what, you know, what's the difference between Padre Pio and me? Well, I mean, he's, he's a holy guy, right? Um, you know, and what does that mean? Uh, well, it, it means he's grown in sanctifying grace uh, organically, uh, you know, towards the, the, the perfection and divine love that supernatural charity represents. But, but so the sacraments are sort of um, instrumental causes of, of modes of that effect as it unfolds, right? Uh, and each one, you can specify even certain, uh, say something about the mode, right? Uh, the way, like, how does the Eucharist affect, affect us, for example, as opposed to baptism, as opposed to the sacrament of confession? Um, confession, for example, or the sacrament of penance um, in combination with um, the anointing of the sick are, are perfect for the end of beatitude in a secondary sense. That is, it presumes the reality of sin, right? I mean, that's why you go to confession, right? <laughs> it's because of sin. Uh, so they affect the end, but, but as a subsidiary, if you will, or, or sort of they have an accidental relationship to the end, which presumes the, the, the reality of sin. But those three, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, intrinsically perfect the individual, right? Um, and Eucharist, Aquinas uses the example of bodily uh, growth or food or birth. Um, it's a hylomorphic analogy uh, in terms of the body and the soul that he's used. He uses to talk about the sacraments from the beginning. Why, why do you have matter and form? Why do you have visible stuff that can impact the senses the way the tree does? Well, it's, it respects the, the, the growth of the body, as it were, right? So baptism is like birth. Confirmation is like growth to perfect manhood, a sort of perfect physical strength. Um, and then the Eucharist is like food. So we're fed by the real presence of Jesus Christ in that sense, uh, as, as something which is not just a symbol or a sign, but as a real causal mode of God's upbuilding of, of Trinitarian indwelling within us, right? Uh, which is particularly the Eucharist and complementary to, but different from baptism, different from confirmation and the sacrament of confession. So uh, we can say the sacraments are causing grace, but they're not just causing grace in a generic sense, as if it's like um, we're sort of collecting tokens in an arcade or something like that. They're all kind of the same, and you get a prize at the end, right? It's sort of, uh, they're intrinsic for one thing. Grace is intrinsic, but, but it's also the different tokens is not the right metaphor, of course, <laughs> for obvious reasons, um, but the different things you get, if you will, are really just modes of the same reality that are, are intrinsically causing that reality to be amplified and stirred up and to grow stronger. So we can, we, yeah, we can speak about the Eucharist in that way, and we should, yeah. But it implies a certain understanding of grace. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just want to speak about that a little bit more because that um, touches on my question about the particularly relating to the perfection that is achieved in heaven. And I was just, I was having a thought that these different modes that we, um, that, the, that the sacraments cause in us and the grace causes in us on earth, that that, brings us to the perfection of heaven and is it brings us close to a particular freedom in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And then that freedom is perfected in heaven and that perfection is um it's it's not limited. Yeah. Right? Like we think of perfection in a human way as like, okay, well that window doesn't have any scratches in it, like it's a perfect it has ninety degree angles. Two or four. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. that's not yeah. a real definition of perfection in yeah. and that's why it's that's a great point. Yeah. Right? 
So yeah. there isn't really a question in there, but more of a clarification. Mm -hmm. um, About the nature of freedom and perfection? Yeah, and yeah. how the different modes of grace affect that on earth and the difference between those yeah. modes on earth yeah. and after in heaven. Okay, oh, that's a great question, yeah. Um, okay, so the question, you know, has to do with the relationship between freedom and perfection and the difference um, between earthly modes of that and, and heavenly modes, right? And so I think in terms of the one, uh, freedom is a commonly misunderstood concept uh, in modernity. Uh, you may have encountered this. I mean, fr freedom is just sort of, it means I do what I want, right? As long as no one inter interferes, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, I do what I want, whatever I want, whenever I want, right? Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, it, it, you're more happy when you make commitments, though, right? Uh, have you noticed this? Uh, you, you, yeah, it's. I mean, the more commitments you make, and the more you live for other people, the happier you get. You know, um, you know that's what vocations are about. For example, priesthood, religious life, or marriage and family, uh, anything like that. You know, it's. I mean, it, 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 there are options lost right, in one sense, but there's happiness gained through a, a commitment to a certain teleology, right? Um, Servius Pincares, who's a Dominican priest and moral theologian, spoke about this difference, which I, I think is a helpful way to think about this, the difference between freedom of indifference and freedom for excellence, right? Yeah, which, okay, yeah, you've heard this. <laughs> yeah, 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 so, okay, so, um, which I think is a really compelling way to think about this, right? So freedom of indifference, doesn't really, you're indifferent to the end, right? So like, ah, I'm free when I have a lot of options. I'm not going to, but if I do anything, the minute I do anything, I lose options. So I better not make any commitments, right? I better just sort of, you know, be free, right? Well, I mean, freedom for excellence implies an understanding that you're, you become free by embracing the truth uh, in an increasingly well-ordered manner. So maybe some background for this. When, when you think about the, the reality of sin, right? Uh, Aquinas calls it a disorder of goods, Right. Uh, so nothing, even the human act, is bad at the level of being. There's no separate evil God who's creating sin. And sin isn't bad ontologically as if it's some created stuff that's evil to the core. Yeah. Uh, so it's in it's in the disorder. Right. And that um, that by introducing disorder through our intellect and will, through our operations, that that's where sin comes in. So an example, you know, I mean. It, that, that could be some things are intrinsically disordered, always and everywhere wrong, right? Uh, some things are wrong because they're in the wrong context, right? This is not the time or the place, you know, and it, it, there's a disorder there, right? Um, the, the, the thing is that the human person, as, as human persons, we live in the context of a reality which is ordered, uh, and an order we didn't choose, right? An order which is ordained by divine wisdom. And the human person um, uh, ourself, right, we have a sense of order about us according to our nature. So the moral life implies a habituation which makes us able to live more easily in patterns, not only that avoid sin, which is good, right? <laughs> but also that live well uh, in a virtuous sense and live for the, the formal end, the perfection of our nature. So the connection between perfection and freedom is there, I think, that to be a perfect human person, what, what does that even mean? Does it mean being good at sports or good at playing the saxophone or something like that? Uh, those are perfections, right? I mean, those are real perfections that you can strive for, get better at. Um, but perfection itself doesn't have a limit. Uh, every time you say that that was very good, 
you're probably able to add one and say that would be even better, right? <laughs> right, that was very good. That was a really great, uh, you know, uh, saxophone uh, uh, recital or whatever, right? <laughs> uh, but it could, you know, if it was just a little better in this way, that would be even more perfect. Perfect's more about participation and form. Uh, when you talk about individuation, like, and that's really reality, like this saxophone concert, again, for example, right, or this human person, uh, the, the measure of perfection is according to the form, which itself is immaterial. So a perfect human person, now obviously Christ's humanity would be the, the, the exemplar there, right? In each of our cases, though, it's going to be an analogical participation that like the more I um, act for the authentic teleology of the human person, the more I lean into that, the more I develop the habitus, the virtues to do that easily and well and on the regular, uh, the more perfect I become, right? Um, and this is even in classical philosophy. You can see, you know, the way virtue theory developed in the Greeks. There is a sense of formality. Like, uh, it's not just do whatever you want and avoid commitment and, you know, um, make sure no one sort of imposes on your freedom, so to say. It's, uh, you know, I mean, you should be living for something, living into a form, as it were, becoming something. And, um, you know, you, again, you can see that even in the, uh, the Greeks, certainly, uh, you know, and in other forms of classical philosophy. But uh, for the Christian life, you know, uh, building on that to a certain extent, there's an understanding of virtue in Jesus Christ. Uh, I didn't touch on this in the talk, but another way to think about grace, right, is in relation to the exemplarity of Christ's humanity. So that, that Christ's perfection of, of human nature provides the root of grace. So when we say we're members of his body, uh, we're participating in the grace of his headship over the church, which participates in the union of his, the grace of union, which is the union of his humanity and his divinity. And so grace is a participation in the divine nature through him, right? Through his perfection. And so as, we're, uh, as our virtue, as we grow in charity, even as we grow in like natural virtue, like prudence, Prudence is super important. Uh, under, I mean, I don't know if it's underrated or not. Uh, underutilized, at least sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, in terms of governing the moral life, uh, what should you do? There's often not a scientific answer. In fact, there isn't yeah. a scientific answer to what you should do in the practical sphere. Science is about universals, right? But then what should you do today? Like, <laughs> and, and how should you do it, right? Like, that admits of a range of, of possible solutions, all of which avoid sin, probably. You could probably think of a lot of ways to do that. Uh, you know, to any, whatever, you, even any practical task or anything you, you get up to in a given day that wouldn't, uh, but, but that still doesn't answer the question of what you should do, right? And, and prudence is, again, it's about order, right? And if sin is disorder, uh, certainly avoiding objective disorder, that's good, but how should you order then? Uh, well, virtue begins to answer that uh, because you become more perfect, right? Uh, but it's more about participation. Um, uh, you could say in the essence human, uh, more perfectly human, but for Christians in a particular sense, it's a more perfect participation in the humanity of Christ through grace that makes us Christ-like, that makes us, uh, yeah, not only more like him in, in a moral sense, like we look like him or resemble him, modeled on him, you know, Christ did all this stuff, so I try to do the same stuff in my own life. And that, that's true, but there's a real ontological participation in grace where we're living his life, we're living in his life, as it were, that, that grace is alive in us and, and forming the life of virtue from the inside out. So perfection in that sense, right, is related to a certain understanding of freedom. Um, and all of that prepares us for beatitude, for sure. Uh, 
Let's see. Did, did I answer your so question? So that's how it looks in heaven. Is it, there is that you know, like preparation on earth, right? That that's right. That, thanks for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a good reminder about the other part of your question. <laughs> um, no, no, that's great. Uh, yeah. So um, that 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 virtuous life is what it looks like here, right? Right. Yes. But when you, uh, in terms of heaven, now this is actually a good point that um, the charity that you achieve now, yes. it gets sort of fixed, right? You know, so. In the one sense, I think just getting your foot in the door would be better than not, right? <laughs> in terms of where heaven is concerned, right? Uh, but you can see a hierarchy among the saints, right? right. In terms yes. of the perfection of charity, right? Like in Dante, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're they're not they're not growing in the habitus of the moral life there in the way that we are here. Yeah. Uh, so there are there are different grades, right, of perfection and even the ability to enjoy beatitude. Yeah. You would say now they all have it, right? Um, but to, there, there are real reasons to strive for perfection and charity here that um, go far beyond just the desire to avoid hell or something, which, which is an important and good desire, right? Uh, but that's really just a starting point. I mean, if you if you think about the the eternal implications of charity, it, it's super significant. I mean, how how appetible is uh, our universals? Um, is self sacrificial love? Are things like that to, to our intellect, to our lives? Are we able to live out our lives on a daily basis uh, in a way that reflects that, those principles? To the extent that the answer is mm, maybe or kind of, you know, there's, there's room for growth and perfection there, which enables us to be um, deeper participants in the divine nature in this life and in the next. But there is a, a difference in the order of growth, we could say, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the saints, um, yeah, there's, there's, there is a certain hierarchy there. So there's there's reason to, to lean into the virtuous life now, I would say, you know, mm-hmm. that extend beyond just sort of, yeah, avoiding punishment, uh, which is also good. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how there's that. It seems like because there's those different grades, almost like there's a yeah. threshold, but it's like an, somehow an infinite threshold because right, yeah. you can't, you live in that, whatever that level of yeah. beatitude is. Yeah. But... You can, I guess. It, I guess it's your capacity for it, right? Yeah. And continually enjoying that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a good way to put it. I think. Yeah. There's there's a capacity. So, another way to look charity in this life, right? Uh, to what extent can you appreciate um, doing something selfless for someone else, purely for the love of God, even if it's onerous? Even it's it's really not something that is attractive for any other reason. <laughs> Maybe even be very unattractive, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the saints in this life, you'll see, have sometimes a, a sort of facility with that. They're sort of like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, I get, and it's attractive to the saint, right? Just because, well, of course, things that express love for God and serve God, sacrifice for Him, are that's what I'm living for, right? That's when you can. So charity becomes. Aquinas says it. It has a a formal role in the moral life, uniting moral action, uh, so that uh, there are things called general virtues, uh, of which charity is the most general. Um, and that is to say that other special virtues, more more um, specific virtues, charity has its own proper acts, but it can also operate the acts of other virtues, which is good news because that means you can do everything for the sake of charity, uh, even things that are explainable according to the formality of a different, more specific virtue, like an act of prudence, for example, uh, or temperance, or uh, meekness. Meekness is a virtue, 
doesn't sound like much of a virtue, right? But it's uh, it's they the vir yeah yeah well that's yeah that's right. But in the eyes of the world, right? This this um, but uh, um, it's uh, it it moderates anger for Aquinas, right? It, it's it's the virtue that holds back um, an excess of the passion of anger. I mean, anger, just as an example, is a natural phenomenon. Reacts to injustice. Um, especially in the present, when injustice is right in your face, and something, somebody needs to say something, right? You know, somebody needs to step up and say something. There's a time and a place, right? You know, for it gives that sort of emotional oomph, you know. Um, and uh, Aquinas uses the example of battlefield courage, also, like what carries you over the top of the trench uh, in, in a time and place when that's what needs to happen, you know. So, you know, there's a certain sense of um, uh, of passion there in the body. But that can obviously go awry also. So the virtue which moderates that is meekness. Um, so, so anyways, the point is you could do that out of charity. Yeah. That's a very specific virtue, but it, yeah. it could be performed out of charity for the higher purpose of charity. And the, whole, the purpose of a moral life is to start to achieve that integration with God's help. You know? So we're, more often than not, though, we're part, parts of our moral life are doing pretty good, and then there are other parts that are yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're not as great. And it may not even be that we're committing all kinds of, uh, of, of sins. No, I mean, that's its own problem, right? But it, there could be just a disorder, right? You know, like a disintegration in our ability to authentically order things for the good out of the love of God. Because remember, the essence of sin is disorder in that sense. So um, that reintegration that charity represents has a real, really profound effect, not only on our eternal finality, finality and beatitude, but our happiness in the presence, you know, um, in unexpected ways, right? The saints don't need anything from this world uh, they're, to be happy. is that they're happy with the formality of charity, right? And living for that, so, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I think that'll do for now. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, all the time we have okay. questions, but thank okay. you. Uh, it's going to be all right, great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.